Welcome to this podcast of the Aquila Report in Weekly Review. This is our opportunity each week to meet with you and uh, to just go over those articles that have been published on the Aquila Report that the readers, have, by the number of times they clicked on it, have given indicated these are the top 10 of the 56 articles that are usually run once a week. So we're glad that to be able to bring you a program like this, a podcast where uh, you can come and get a tease, or a tease and understanding of what's coming uh, uh, by uh, Tuesday uh, morning. You'll receive the weekly newsletter that has those articles hyperlinked and all you have to do is click on them to go up and read them. And even after the podcast is over, if you just want to sort of get a background to something that uh, was in the articles you didn't maybe understand or wanted more background, we try and give those uh, that as well. So uh, Paul Harrell and I, Dominic Aquila, come together and uh, we re- make this review of the Aquila Report. And uh, so Paul, uh, it's good to be with us. We seem like we have a variety this week. Uh, a couple of them hang together. We might try and deal with them together, but um, it's just interesting always what the readers uh, click and say, yeah. this is what they like. Well, I mean, I'll tell you this much, Dominic. I think you are definitely really good on camera uh, because, I mean, you've done a couple of videos now uh, educating folks on what's going to be coming up before these uh, presbyteries across the country. And I just want to commend you. You've done an excellent job. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Well, the first article deals with that. And if you haven't seen the video that Paul is talking about, uh, it's a video that was uh, has a, a teaching elder, Reverend uh, Fred Greco, who's pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Katy, Texas, which is just a little bit west of Houston. Uh, and I and we presented uh, reasons uh, to vote in favor of the amendments that are before the general assembly, before the presbyteries that were approved by general assembly. Uh, there was already there have been articles that we have run and others have run on what were known as Overture 23 and Overture 37, and uh, so the uh, the those two overtures were uh, uh, dealt with very deeply and significantly by the Overtures Committee at General Assembly this past uh, June July, and uh, they cobbled together the you know the, the words because there were many other overtures that dealt with the same theme uh, that f- flow out of the revoice issue that has been um, before the church for the last number of years. So the question was, what is it that we should uh, deal with do with reference to uh, the meaning of words like uh, beyond um, um, you know, be, be you know, see what what's the phrase? Uh, beyond uh, you know, reproach, uh, respected, and so forth that are in the book of church order in terms of the list of things that flow out of First Timothy chapter three and also Titus chapter one. The, those two primary passages that the apostle Paul gives, uh, where he lays out uh, the broad outline of what an elder of the church ought to be like. And so in our case, it's the minister, the ruling elders, and then also the deacons. Those are our three ordained offices. So this one is entitled Reasons to Vote in Favor of Amendments to the BCA, PCA's Book of Church Order, uh, and then deals with uh, chapter 16, and then that's a paragraph four. It's a whole new paragraph. And the article has the 
the statement all written out so you can read that amendment. Uh, then also, uh, which deals with the qualifications in general for anyone who uh, should was being considered for uh, any of the ordained offices. And then BCO 20, which deals with what should be included in the examination. One of the phrases that we use in the Book of Church Order when we're examining uh, men for uh, any of office is to is one area is called Christian character. And under that uh, phrase is just um, uh, what is the person like? Uh, g- give us your testimony about Christ, your sense of calling, either as a minister, or an elder, or a deacon. Uh, the you know how you handle yourself in your job and in, uh, in public, uh, your relationship with your family, uh, just basically your demeanor in terms of following Christ. And the other one attached to that is BCO 24. So 16, 20, and 24. The uh, last two are almost identical because they just deal in two different sections with either the minister, which is chapter 20, or the elder and deacons, chapter 24. So having given you all that wonky stuff, the uh, point uh, here is that the Presbyterian Church in America is uh, because of the current issues that have been raised uh, because of uh, uh, Revoice, uh, it says we, in the current situation, need to define a little bit more clearly and carefully what above reproach, uh, what does it mean to be res- uh, respected in the community and in the church and so forth, and in terms of the qualifications for men in office. Now, we refocus very carefully and quickly that this amendments do not deal with communicant members, uh, their views or their membership in the church. The church uh, door is open to sinners as sinners. That's it. Uh, The gospel is for sinners, no matter who they are, no matter what the kind of sins or categorization. This is question is when we go to the point and raise the point of coming to who will give leadership. What are those qualifications that the scripture itself give? And because of the current issue, we've just refined that discussion a little bit more. So in this article, you will be read reasons to vote uh, and it'll just in bullet point framework, not, not to get too exhausted so people can read it quickly and see how focused it is on this. That And then number two, there's also a reference to the video that Paul just mentioned that uh, Fred Greco and I uh, produced uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that way it, it's about a 28 minute tape and it is, has been watched by many, many uh, people in the uh, PCA. And in fact, quite a few outside the PCA as well. So that's the background. And if you want to know what these uh, amendments are about and read them with your own eyes and, uh, and then see them outlined and the reasons why we believe that we should vote in favor of them, uh, and each presbytery has to do it. Just one more uh, detail on that. Uh, the General Assembly received uh, many overtures, uh, I think up to something like eight. They were distilled down to two, 23 and 37, and then the wording was worked out by the Overtures Committee, and then it was presented on the floor of the General Assembly for debate and discussion, and finally voted on. when. The two uh, amendments for 23 and 37 were voted on. The first one received a 77.2% vote, 
which is, as uh, Fred Greco says in the tape, uh, the recording, he says, we can't hardly get 51% to agree that on a sunny day, it's a sunny day. Uh, so it's uh, amazing. And then the for the vote for Overture 37 was a slight difference. It was 62%, and there were other you know reasons why that was it. The more important one really was uh, the, the, the first vote on 23, which was 77%, because it deals with those uh, qualifications. So it's just good to have that background. Now they are sent automatically down to the presbyteries of the Presbyterian Church in America. There are 88 presbyteries, and the amendment process requires that two-thirds of the presbyteries uh, give approval, at least two-thirds, uh, give approval uh, for an amendment to pass. And then the next general assembly has to, again, once again, vote by majority vote to approve it. So one general assembly sends it down. You have at least two thirds of the presbyteries have to approve. The next general assembly also has to vote uh, as well. Anyway, that's the, the big picture and gives you most of anything. Plus it directs you to the, uh, to the video where you'll be able to read it. Presbyteries are already voting. Uh, my I was going to say, do we have a count? Yet yes, yes, we okay. do. Uh, it just so happens that you're talking to the guy who's tracking it. So <laughs> that's good. <laughs> well, you know, if you're running a news agency, I guess you better know what's going on. So right now, the the tendency, just in terms of any BCO amendments, uh, it no matter what they are, whether they're uh, high profile or not. So most presidents tend to vote for them in their um, winter meetings, which January, February, March, somewhere in that range. Some have already voted now in September. Now we're coming into October. There'll probably be uh, another, uh, let's see, I've, I've got about six that have voted already and they're, um, and I, I suspect we're going to get another 14 to 15. Usually it's about that many that one third the press days vote um, now. And then there are no more meetings after November, you know, December's Christmas and all. And then January, we'll probably see the preponderance. Right now, six presbyteries voted. The vote is five to one in favor of these amendments. And the votes have been really interesting. They've been uh, overwhelmingly where they've been approved have been overwhelming. And in the one presbytery that it failed, it was a very, very close vote. So a couple of votes, which and we would have um, that presbytery would have voted in favor. So we'll see. Um, uh, let me uh, just a, a question on the process there. So, you know, the Presbytery in, you know, the, the one Presbytery that voted it down, you know, there are several meetings between now and GA next year. Is there a chance that you could bring it back up for consideration? Sure. Right. And it can't. Any any vote of a Presbytery on amendments can be voted on again if a church, if a uh, court decides to do that. And uh, and because the vote, even though you re, you send your vote into the state clerk's office uh, to report it to keep up the official uh, tally, uh, that uh, the the court any vote can change, uh, and and up until the the formal gavel is hit for the next general assembly to begin. So once the next general assembly is called to order, you can't vote anymore. So that sort of puts it in a uh, that's you know, what's interesting about this to me is, you know, in the aftermath of the General Assembly and these proposed BCO amendments, I remember uh, Greg Johnson saying that he thought that 
even if these did pass, I read this somewhere that they wouldn't affect him in any sort of way. And so that is is interesting. If true, you would kind of wonder what what's the big deal with these amendments then? Uh, You know, why would there be people against them? Uh, That's that's a good question, Uh, because basically what we're in. when minister, when any of the ordained offices, again, minister, elder, or deacon, are being questioned, they they're being questioned initially on their knowledge of things, uh, their knowledge of uh, you know church history, the Bible, the Book of Church Order, the sacraments, church, that kind of thing, uh, and their views. So it's a it's a two pronged uh, examination. So what? How much do you really know the stuff? And number two, what is your view as expressed in the confession? So the confession and catechisms become the standard against which you are viewed against how you explain your knowledge, but also whether or not you concur with the framework, uh, the system of doctrine taught in the confession and catechisms. So at that point, I, I would think that if someone had a different view, not necessarily knowledge, but view, then is perceived to be the view of the confession, then it's, uh, you know, that's when a person needs to at least make himself known. The second uh, ordination vow for all three offices basically says something like this, that do you receive and adopt the confession of faith and catechisms as a, a teaching the, as containing the system of doctrine taught in the scriptures? Okay, and then period. And so basically you're asking to understand it and that you also, you know, un, um, uh, give an approval to the system. There's a system that's it's a covenantal system. Uh, it's a moral system and th- that kind of thing. Then it goes on to say, if and, and do you further, do you promise that on your own, if any of your views should change since the assumption of your ordination vows, that you will on your own, uh, can you know ref, uh, report this to your own presbytery or session and allow them to determine whether or not any change is strikes at the vitals, the significance of that system. So uh, I would say that the standard of the confession is what we're looking at in terms of how does the confession explain the whole nature of morality, human sexual ethics, and so forth on this regard. Uh, And uh, given what's happened so far with Missouri Presbytery, where sort of is the vortex of all the issues, and uh, and especially as they've uh, dealt with uh, uh, Mr. Johnson, Dr. Johnson, well, it's uh, that Presbytery might have a different outcome in examining his views than some other Presbyteries. So that's how it generally works. Well, it, that's good to know. That's really, yeah. really good information. Good. And so forth. So the, anyway, the point I make in, in, with regard to the number one article that you will have the link on for tomorrow uh, in the cool report newsletter is, is the reasons to vote for uh, that are put forth in very hopefully clearly with bullet points. So you don't you're not reading a lot of verbiage and, you know, flowery language, and it's very direct. And if, and to add to it, then you can just click on the link for the video and you can listen in 28 minutes. You'll have that given in that dialogue that uh, Fred Greco and I uh, did. 
Uh, by the way, just as another point, uh, when we were we were in Nashville recording this with a professional videographer and set up and everything, it was really nice uh, that Fred and I also uh, recorded 16 uh, videos on the Book of Church Order. Uh, Fred is the not only pastor at uh, Christ Church in Katy, Texas, but he um, is also the chairman of the Standing Judicial Commission. And I had served on it for many years and had served as chairman as well many times for a long time. And um, the uh, so we, you know, we have a handle on this and we are constantly receiving questions. Um, what does this mean? What does this mean? And so forth from the Book of Church Order. How do we process this and consider it? And so for a long time, he and I have been talking about doing this and this occasion of doing this video for these amendments gave us the occasion to sit down let's make the list so we have 16 different areas of the confession that are either the ones that are the most asked about or misunderstood or misapplied and hopefully we did it now each video then is anywhere from 15 to 22 minutes we purposely wanted to keep them short so it's like a video commentary where you can just say one word this part of the video means because we're about we want clarity on it you can just go there'll be a website eventually where all these videos will exist and you can just pick that one you don't have to go through sit through long lectures uh on everything it'll be very quick and you can can get it so that'll those are being edited now and they should be out soon so you heard it all here right. first yeah, all right so what, what do we get for number two number two uh the uh, number two changes now to our uh, trusted and true blue. Uh, how can we split a church with a mask, no mask, vaccination, no vaccination kind of thing? But this one a little bit different in that it's uh, employee vaccination religious exemption is the title. And the question is, um, what is there? Can someone take a religious e exemption? Uh, you know, we have religious exemption for the draft and for other um, uh, parts of our culture uh, that are usually uh, allowable. And so the question comes up, can if with man, the, the possibility of mandates coming up in some places, some pla uh, businesses have already done mandates exclusive of what the government might do. Uh, so uh, what did is Kyle Borg, uh, who is a member of the Reform uh, Presbyterian Church in North America, he's a pastor in that sometimes that uh, Reformed Presbyterian Church, North America, is the, known as the Covenanters. And uh, so Kyle uh, is really helpful, and he provided a template in this article of a letter that a minister uh, can use. In fact, he, he wrote this uh, for um, a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. So he had, he begins, in my capacity as a minister in the PCA, or I am writing on behalf of blank, you fill in the person's name, uh, to ask that his or her religious exemption re from receiving a COVID-19 vaccine be honored by your organization. So that's first paragraph. And then the following paragraphs basically just give the rationale as to why there would be this religious exemption. Uh, this is something that um, may be received, may not be. Uh, this is, I know there uh, have some, this template letter that you have that's in this article uh, has been already presented for some uh, men and women in the military 
because who have conscience objection about the vaccine and taking it. And so you can see it's a good letter. It's, uh, you know, it's lengthy, but not lengthy, but it's, it's uh, not short. And uh, so if you are looking for this, if you fit that category of um, not comfortable in taking the vaccine and your uh, employee, employer or business, whatever it is, may require that you do so, uh, is the religious exemption going to be done? No guarantee that will, but now you have a letter that covers the bases, and I think it's a very well-written letter. It really is, and and it really goes. Um, I, I like the first, second, third points. You know, you get to the fourth point here, and this <clears throat> this one kind of struck a nerve with me. Um, fourth, COVID nineteen vaccines were tested and developed using fetal cells. Now, just that that first sentence. Uh, fourth, COVID-19 vaccines were tested and developed using fetal cells. The reason I want to make a distinction there is because I, I there was a hospital that put out um, requesting employees who had requested a religious exemption. Hospital put out uh, in central Arkansas uh, an attestation letter that they wanted the people uh, who were applying for the religious exemption to sign. And in the attestation letter, they were trying to get the Christian uh, to become a hypocrite because they listed a bunch of over-the-counter medications like aspirin, Tylenol, and uh, Motrin that are also tested, okay, using uh, these aborted fetal cell lines, if you will. So the, the, the general consensus from the medical community is back in the 60s or 70s. Uh, you know, there was the, there was a couple elected abortions. They were elected abortions and they took those cells and then they've continued to cultivate those cells on and on and on. The problem with that letter, though, trying to say, well, if you don't take the vaccine, then you shouldn't take ibuprofen, you hypocrite. The problem with that is the idea of testing versus development. And I, I just want to say, you know, for this podcast and for clarity, there is a difference. And you might also be thinking, if you're a critical thinker, that uh, drugs like Tylenol or drugs like Motrin were invented before the 70s, and you would be correct. So I did some research on that, Dominic, and I, what I found was that because of uh, you know safety or regulations or whatever, what they did was is they when when they started getting these fetal cell lines, you know, uh, and they were reproducing them you know, for infinity or whatever, um, you know, for continual testing or vaccine development, then they would go back and they, they passed rules, regulations and laws that said, you know what, all these other medicines that we already have, that we've already invented, we're going to go ahead and retest them to make sure that they're, quote, safe. Now, I think this opens up an entire can of worms and a lot of people are finding out things that give them ethical questions because I definitely have a check in the whole testing process when we're when we're using, you know, anything from, uh, you know, human cells and, and abort. It's just it's very, very eerie. But specifically, they're doing this as a way to obfuscate the truth of the development using fetal cells, uh, meaning Johnson and Johnson's vaccine required the use of the cell, incubation of the cell, not just testing, but they required, you know, the growth of the vaccine or the development of the vaccine actually using the fetal cells. And the reason I just wanted to make that clear, and maybe that's as clear as mud to you, I don't know, but 
is because there are the secular world out there are really upset. They are really, really upset that Christians are now looking into vaccines, looking into how they're developed. And they're trying to make you seem like a hypocrite if you use ibuprofen. And that's just not the case because there is a difference uh, between testing and development. Absolutely. So, well, you know, like I said, this is uh, cutting across, um, you know, ideologies, you know, the the red, the blue, so forth. It's it's, uh, you know, and so there are many questions uh, on this regard. I think there needs to be least respect. So at least in that letter, you have a template, you have a good explanation. Um, And so I know uh, I've received an anecdotal calls and illustrations of people that thanked us that we ran ran that letter so they've been already using it um, in the place. Now, the the third article then touches on that. So that's number two was the the letter about religious exemption and uh, other maybe other exemptions, but mainly religious, uh, is number three is uh, written by Samuel Say, S-E-Y, I uh, wasn't a minority until today. He's uh, originally from Ghana. He lives in Canada. And we've run a number of his articles uh, because he, he says, I never really felt like a, a minority until today. And the reason for it is what we just were talking about. Um, he says, my friend and I are the Canadian, uh, are what the Canadian official officially labels as visible minorities. But we've never accepted that term. We are not minorities. We've never felt outnumbered in this country. We've never felt as outsiders in our home until now. Well, what changed? Well, we never felt like minorities until now. We had the right as anybody else until now. We have never felt uh, felt like minorities in a two-tier system until now. Uh, We've never felt like a second-class citizen until now. So what caused it to change? Well, because Doug Ford, who is the provincial premier of in Canada, uh, has called for a, uh, a vaccine passport. And pre, uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's federal uh, ma- uh, med- vaccine med- mandate. I will no longer, therefore, because he doesn't want to take the, ma- the vaccine, I will no longer be allowed in restaurants, movie theaters, concerts, gyms, some uh, train on some trains and planes. And so he says now, in other words, uh, I am the virus, he says, and I am the feeling like a second class citizen uh, and a minority. So it's it's just a, a twist on something that somebody who is what we would call a racial minority in most cases, he never really felt it because of the, where he was living and felt accepted. Now he's definitely in this area, at least a uh, vaccine minority. Uh, so it's a clever way of uh, writing on it that, again, just gets us to think through uh, what is really taking place, um, not only in the United States, but maybe around the world, because it's definitely happening in Canada as well. Oh, man. And and, and what's happening in Australia. I, I mean, and you just think about how fast things have happened, uh, how quickly, what a year, what a difference a year makes. And you just wonder, you know. You know, is this going to is this a preview of what they want to do here in America? Some positive news last week in that Britain abandoned their vaccine passport plans. 
uh, Canada, not so much. Definitely not in Australia. You see the protests and just the everything's a powder keg over there. And it's just a really dangerous situation. Um, but, yeah, the idea of, of minorities and, and what's interesting here is how, you know, how the, the media really does shape the news and they can condemn uh, and absolve based on a rotating moral scale. That's why I've called these uh, these news anchors a lot of times news priests, because it's it d- does seem that way. And specifically when it comes to the vaccine, if you look at how it affects in America, if you look at how it affects racial uh, minorities and how the, the, the amount of uh, people who are in the minority racially who have not taken the vaccine. And so people are now starting to say, uh, you know, this is a new form of segregation. But because the mainstream media doesn't see it that way and is just going to ignore the actual outcomes of their policies, it's it's all of a sudden not a racial issue. It's not racism. It would be interesting to see how quickly people would turn their opinions on a dime. Those who only get their news from the mainstream media. If all of the sudden there was the possibility that if you felt the way you do about vaccines or forcing vaccines or vaccine passports, that you might be a racist. It would be interesting to see how quickly because that's the worst thing in America these days. Being called a racist or thought of as a bigot is the number one fear for a lot of people these days. It's a, uh, it's fascinating, but yeah, number three is a great article. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, when you have a article that, um, you know, just challenges our normal, um, insight on things, uh, it, and the way we frame it, uh, is, is really helpful. So Samuel says article, I think you'll find challenging, uh, and helpful. Well, <laughs> we moved from two articles now, uh, that, touching in one way or the other on uh, the vaccine and the COVID. Who would ever have thought then, by the way, when COVID started, it would be as uh, divisive, divisive as we uh, see it now. Uh, This fourth article deals with another area that uh, hardly is getting a lot of press and uh, two sides that are very equally divided on the intention. It's on critical race theory. And this article starts out entitled Critical Race Theory is on the Ropes uh, by John Green. It's in the uh, article from The American Thinker. Uh, He said, uh, protests against critical race theory are breaking out all over America. It may even be shaping up as a major electionary issue next year. Parents are protesting against CRT, that's critical race theory, at school board meetings and with the local schools. Uh, school administrations. Uh, It has become a heated issue that even state and local governments are getting involved and they are uh, not coming down on the side of CRT. But CRT supporters are telling opponents that they simply don't understand what it is. Uh, They claim they're fighting racism by giving children a complete and well-rounded picture of the issues. uh, Of the issue. They assert that opponents are denying the reality of history by not supporting CRT. But is it really that the case? Are opponents just a bunch of ignorant rubes that don't get it? So there are a number of books and papers on CRT which provide numerous philosophical interpretations. However, they all subscribe to five basic tenets. So what uh, Green then proposes in this article are these five basic tenets, I'll just read quickly in a moment, 
uh, where he says there's uniformity across the board uh, with reference to anything that promotes itself as uh, CRT. Uh, and basically just the titles that will entice you to this is something you really want to dig into uh, when you get the newsletter tomorrow. Racism is a central component of American life. Translation racism pervades everything that defines our American culture. Number two, uh, critical race theory rejects the goal of color blindness. Uh, CRT does not subscribe to the notion that we should judge each other by the content of our characters rather than the color of our skin. And they make that clear. And so uh, Green says that's a thing that's in every one of these propositions in CRT number two. Number three, anecdotal experiences of people of color are more valid than statistical or empirical evidence. In other words, how you feel about something, uh, what you suppose something is, is more critical than if you really have, you know, good statistics where you could go back and put it into scope, you know, anything that's going to be that you claim is true should be able to be replicated, at least in the scientific area of empirical evidence. Number four, the critical race theory challenges the lessons of conventional history. Uh, That is, uh, the history doesn't comport with claims of systemic racism. History must be must be challenged. It, It doesn't comport with that. So go back and reinterpret history. Uh, just think of all the statues that have come down. They don't uh, fit into the, uh, the the way history uh, may have unfolded. Um, and now it's the we're revising all those things. Number five, that CRT is committed uh, to a social justice agenda. That is another word for social justice for payback. Now, what Green uh, says is the problem then with this with CRT is that it does nothing to heal the racial divide. It does promote, uh, doesn't promote harmony in our society, creates divisiveness and balkanization. Its proponents are teaching our children to resent each other. Resentment leads to hatred and hatred leads to violence. So yes, CRT really is as bad as the opponents say it is. Parents across the country are fighting back. Politicians recognize that this is going to be a real big deal. And that's why state and local officials are becoming involved. So, you, I mean, we hardly can listen to a news broadcast anymore without saying something about it. Uh, this article, I think, will really be helpful because what it does, at least it says here are five tenets that you can find in every proponent of CRT. Uh, and there may be other things as well, but those are the five things that are important as you listen to the language. And then there's a summary of how to... Um, really understand CRT and putting it into the narrative of the uh, the debate that's going on in the country right now. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of people that have you know, gone before school boards and are, you know, combating this. There was a story broken by Project Veritas, not just with CRT, but with just straight up Marxism, where their teacher was, you know, essentially trying to uh, educate revolutionaries and, uh, tr- you know, just completely uh, make children into radicals and Marxist radicals at that. So a lot of this uh, being so blatant in our schools, I mean, personally, I think it's been hidden in our school curriculum for a long, long time. But at this point, it is uh, it's open and our educational system in a lot of ways has been you know, co-opted. 
But this is a bridge too far. And I think for somebody in my uh, at, at my age who was brought up to believe that color blindness was the goal uh, to treat everybody uh, as equal, not based on the color of their skin, but based on the content of their character, as Martin Luther King Jr. said. Uh, that was what was was in, in in my experience in public school. That was what was beat into our heads uh, every single year. And then to get outside of that and to now say, you know what? No, that was wrong. You know, you're actually racist and, you know, there's no way to atone for your racism because you have white skin. This to parents that now have children in public school, this is uh, it, it's just such a giant contradiction that it's forcing them to show up and fight for the kind of public school that they want. Yeah. And and the next uh, article then um, just shows one of the outcomes uh, of this. So this is um, number article number five. And like I said, it touches on the the same thing only now it says what's one of the outcomes well the title american homeschooling goes boom uh, that is instead of bust right homeschooling is growing uh this is written by um susie weiss uh, uh she's a guest uh, uh, columnist on the uh, uh, the common sense blog by barry weiss barry used to be the uh she was the uh, an editor uh high up in the edit uh, process at New York Times and resigned and wrote a letters to why she resigned from there because of all the those very things that we're talking about here is that you had to operate and speak and see everything through the lens of CRT or some other of these nuanced new things that are taking place. So uh, this is an actual uh, article written uh, by the experience of Susie Weiss when uh, she, um, you know, her children uh, that uh, she was dealing with and others that she knew about, uh, it's because of COVID, they were homeschooling and then they were going to put them back in school. But then because they were more alert now to uh, what what was happening in the school system, they should have been alert before. But now they really were just because they had to pay attention uh, during the time when the kids were at home uh, and training. So. The that so all of a sudden they sort of have uh, been awakened, or to use the colloquial phrase, they've become woke about what's happening in the school uh, and so forth. So what she says is as a result of the CRT and other kinds of things, the whole the sexuality issue is also part of it. The number of kids going to school at uh, at home nationwide has doubled over the past two years. In 2019, there were 2.5 million students learning at home. Today, there are nearly 5 million. That means more than 11% of American households are educating their children outside of the traditional schools. Uh, in Warble's state, and this is another parent she's referring to, uh, homeschool applications are up 75%. And that's in the Northeast, where regulations are the strictest. The phenomenon is exploding across the country. In North Carolina, the site for registering homeschools crashed last summer just because of all the people that were going to it. In California, applications for school uh, uh, homeschooling tripled from 2020-2021. Uh, 
And in Alaska, more than a quarter of the students in the state are now homeschooled. And it's just, she goes on with, again, those empirical data, all statistical, you can go, everyone can go and check them out. And it's a fairly long article that um, explores this and explains the background as well as the effects it's having on, um, you know, on the local schools and then also on homeschooling itself, which means the parents are also realigning their priorities uh, as a result of this. Yeah, they they are. And it's uh, it's interesting. It's almost kind of like getting back to the basics. You know, you're in this article says in Texas and in Florida, parents are not required to notify the state. So it's hard to even know how many kids are learning at home. Um, that's a level of freedom I can get behind. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, well, it may be so. By the way, just again, research. What's I love about this article is not only when it's it's uh, showing that parents are rising up and taking the responsibility they probably should never have given up. Uh, so I'm in favor of that in any case, uh, whether they have the kids in the school or uh, homeschooling or wherever, is that the parents are the the primary uh, givers and uh, the ones that should be overseeing this and not have a distant hand and just say here uh, public schools or even Christian schools here are my kids uh, do with them when you want you shape mold them I'm going to go to work and now they're mm-hmm. waking up from that so uh, they, to me that's a very positive uh, effect whether they're in the school or out of the school that the parents are now engaged more than ever before they are. And, you know, it's uh, we're we're going to homeschool our, our daughter starting out and uh, at least. And, and you know, we and w- when I was thinking there's a lot of a lot I have very strong opinions about it. But, you know, if somebody asks me the polite thing for me to say <laughs> instead of going into a, a tirade would just be, you know what? We just decided if you go the public school route, there's just too many difficult things to navigate. And that has been a, a this kind of my blanket statement. And most people understand, you know, if you just say that, like, not that you have to explain yourself to anybody, but if you think about it, there's just too many variables now that even the goodwill of the teacher, like even if you have a fantastic teacher, it's it's almost as if the system in and of itself, here I go on my tirade, the bureaucracy is going to be a net negative and at least when you start doing the math, no pun intended, and you just start, like you were saying, Dominic, who's going to shape and mold my kids? What are all the variables to navigate? You know what? It might just be easier. Maybe we don't have, you know, as many new cars or, uh, you know, as big of a house. Maybe there are some financial sacrifices that have to be made by the parents in order to, you know, homeschool your kid. But I think people are making those decisions. And I think those are you know, it's it's good that it's it's happening. It's great that we have the freedom to make those choices. Yeah, and it's a, uh, we're being allowed to do that now. Before many years ago, it was uh, more difficult, and there are parts of the country where it's still uh, you have to jump quite a few hoops. But the last paragraph of this very long article, so you it'll be a deep dive if you uh, when you get it and read it. Uh, the founders, referring to the founding mem- uh, people who founded the Uh, United States, both before and then during the uh, Revolutionary War, did not have the benefit of any playground or tables or teachers union, but they were free thinkers. The Constitution, Speed pointed out, uh, this this person who was, uh, she was quoting, the Constitution, Speed pointed out, quote, was largely the work of people instructed at home. Uh, 
So I thought that was an interesting way for uh, the article to end. Uh, now, the sixth um, article here is entitled The Disillusion, the, uh, Disillusion of the Millennial Evangelicals. Disillusionment is now a dominant feature of this group that was once convinced it could change uh, the world. Uh, sometimes they're known as the uh, Gen Zers. You know, before it was Gen X and then Y, and now, now we're up to Z. I don't remember hearing about A, B, or C Gens, but anyway. Um, so basically, they says the Gen Zers have all but replaced millennials as the dazzling object of scrutiny and cultural analysis. It's not because millennials are no longer uh, struggling. Rates of addiction, depression, burnout, and loneliness are all disproportionately high among the demographics born between 1981 and 96. Those are the millennials. Uh, that because they were coming up to, I guess, the 2000 millennials. So somebody threw that sociological word at them. Since 2013, in fact, uh, millennials have spent have seen 40, 47% increase in major depression diagnoses. And so the question is, why is that happening in that particular age group born uh, from 1981 to 1996? For their part, uh, evangelical millennials are in a season of de deconstruction and deconversion. And that, that's a new word that's, by the way, being used, Paul, if you haven't seen it. Um, and a lot of millennial pastors people who were sort of on the cutting edge of everything are now celebrating, announcing and celebrating their deconversion from evangelicalism mm -hmm. and from Christ himself. Uh, so uh, it's, I guess it sounds better than apostasy uh, might be. So anyway, the, uh, they're in a season of deconstruction and deconversion or reeling from many uh, of the influence uh, from the many influential and high profile leaders that have recently either left the faith or fallen from grace. Disillusionment is now a dominant feature of this group that was once it convinced it could change the world. And that's interesting that the height from which they have fallen, um, just in terms of doing just a bit of analysis on that, is the assumption was that, uh, that almost any kind of social movement that is started, whether it's called you social gospel, uh, social justice, uh, give it whatever name you want, always starts out with a utopian perspective. It, it, that's the end. If we can do this, 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 and this, uh, we, we, we can reach utopia and finally overcome all of these, uh, you know, the issues that uh, keep whatever uh, ill the uh, you perceive are the most ills that the a culture has and eventually they crash and burn and go on the ash heap of history of, of failing to being able to bring about a utopian change of whatever the fill in the blank of the name and here's another case where in these studies that have been done where have all the millennials gone well far far away as the uh where have all the uh, children gone you know the past songs yeah mm -hmm. so anyway uh, it, it's a, just a really interesting article analysis and there it's sort of the next mm -hmm. thing that's under the microscope uh these are the guys that were going to change everything but um all of a sudden they're popping pills and and trying to get over all the heartache and 
pain in their minds. And this this was the part this article really stood out to me in the collection of 10 this week. Um, recently, my friend Sean McDowell um, described a conversation he had with a deconverted evangelical. He was surprised to learn that this skeptic first started to doubt his faith at a Coldplay concert. Now, that's a band for those of you that don't know. The lead singer didn't challenge anyone's faith or any particular truth claims from the stage. However, the concert produced in the skeptic so many of the feelings he had always associated with worship. The stadium of people singing in unison. The strong emotion elicited by lyrics and melody and the unifying cultural grandeur of it all felt a lot like, well, church. Mm-hmm. And that part of the art, I mean, go read this because it's fascinating that it really makes you wonder, OK, well, what are we what are we instilling in in kids and growing up in church? Uh, what does the worship look like? Not that <clears throat> not that there, there's not emotion produced in worshiping the one true living God. It'd be kind of strange if there wasn't. Um, but, you know, why why do we worship? Why do we sing songs and spiritual songs? Why do we do these things? Um, anyway, it's just it's interesting. I mean, the, the first thing that popped out at me when I when I read this account is just a total lack of. Uh, catechization, honestly. That is. And and this is the generation that was raised um, without their feet ever touching the grounds because everything was given to them. You know, again, these are broad generalizations that have been written about that. Um, <clears throat> so the um, and, and so they didn't go through life with too many ripples. We didn't have we did have some in wars in the Iraq uh, desert storm and so forth. But it, they weren't monumental things like the Vietnam War or World War II or something like that, which sort of stamped uh, generations, uh, to, you know, to come. Anyway, the, the, it's interesting that the study, they've reached a point, an age where by this point, this, the seas would have retracted and not going to swamp the earth. The, um, the air would be pure and without any pollutions and all. And the... Uh, you know, everybody would be sitting in a circle and sing Kumbaya and all of a sudden it hasn't happened. And they, they wonder where, what happened. And that's a good point. And then, and then if you look at those, you know, maybe who have never been converted in the first place, you know, they, there's this recognition or there's, there's a, there's an accurate realization of injustice in the world. And this is why they want to tear down statues and they, they can't reconcile Dominic how people in our past could have done very bad things, but also done good things. Yeah. And exactly. Christ is the one who answers that question. You know, the gospel is what reconciles all of that. So there's no need to tear down statues. There's no need to try, but, but because they are on their own quest to perfect themselves through, you know, man made ends, they feel like they must go and edit history to make themselves pure, um, yep. and and the but the gospel explains it all in a perfect circle, and it all makes sense. And uh, in anyway, that's well. It, it, so the, that's the other thing is that if an idea opposes it, we're in we, we cancel it instead of uh, dealing with it. In other words, we're trying to create that utopia where there aren't uh, there there isn't conflict, and so to have somebody give a reasonable, rational response 
to a proposition or to present a proposition that sounds reasonable, even if you don't agree with it, uh, the, the way to get rid of it is just, I don't like it. So we dismiss it and not only dismiss it, we cancel it as opposed to dealing with the, those realities in which we live. Now, maybe the, uh, that article number seven fits into this discussion so beautifully. Uh, it's called the seven characteristics of a good Bible teacher. And what I, I maintain is that evangelicalism lost its way when it bought into a therapeutic model of teaching and preaching as opposed to a the and left off a theological model. That therapy means that we're just we are trying to fix everybody's problems. That's part of utopian. You see, if I can get you to uh, be the, the best husband, best wife, you know, have your finances or be a good employer, be a good, um, you know, uh, friend, you know, so forth. So here are five things you do on this and 10 things you do on that and that kind of thing. Then it's it becomes a mass uh, therapy. Uh, but mass therapy without theology doesn't go anywhere because it's like eating chaff. Uh, you can eat all the chaff you want. And in fact, I always say, if somebody really wants to lose weight, I've got the chaff diet. Uh, just eat it for a couple of weeks and you will lose weight. Of course, you'll also probably have to wind up in the hospital to get vitamin, get vitamins and so forth because there's no nutrition. There's nothing in it. It's one, if you have, uh, if you, you, you go ahead and mail me some chaff. So I'd like See, to see exactly. You know, in fact, I, I I'm thinking if because you put that out and people just want to lose weight, they're not even going to think about what what is chaff and so forth. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I better be careful because in this day and age, uh, you start saying that and you have people lining up your front door and says, I want a piece of that action. So uh, so here are seven habits of good Bible teachers. And so if you if you're teaching good theology and good by saying theology doesn't have to automatically means highfalutin and and uh, incomprehensible it just means sound teaching if you really are presenting sound teaching uh you get therapy that is truth leads to light and life uh and what we try and do is we leave off that truth and we're just giving you know this uh, bromides and uh makes a difference so uh in this um article um you see, by uh, Doug uh, Eaton, uh, he just gives 10 reasons. And he starts out by saying teaching scripture is a spiritual gift, but it also is a skill. And this means that not everybody's called to be a teacher. It also means just because someone is gifted does not mean they do uh, they do not need to improve the skills. So in other words, you, you there's a skills development part along with the knowledge part. Several things come into play. That impacts the quality of teaching, the sound of your voice, your cadence, and even uh, the way you dress. Uh, there are even more important aspects to teaching scripture than what I can cover below. And he has, you know, 10 things that he sees that are important uh, for this. So assuming all the foundations of biblical understanding are in place, and that's a big assumption in our generation here, uh, the, that uh, all the biblical understandings are in place, and the teacher has studied with diligence, there are seven things that need to he needs to keep in mind. So for instance, a good teacher is concerned about wasting their students' times. So in other words, if you're teaching scripture, you tend to have a captive audience. If you work for an academic institution, your students must be there for class. But for the rest of us, we tend to teach in a church setting. What this means is that we need to be faithful uh, we'll tend to show up whether we're good teachers or not and never use an excuse to phone in and so forth. But the point is, 
uh, you, you're not there. Don't just blabber, but you want to say something that's worth the time that the person is giving. A good teacher is more concerned with clarity than a pairing highbrow. So uh, saying bigger words doesn't make you more um, literate. Uh, it just makes you more dense uh, because you're not communicating well. The goal of teaching is for the students to have a better understanding of the topic. So speak in a way that they can understand it. Uh, number three, a good teacher explains what they're, what they're teaching is important, why, it, why they're, it's important. Uh, and they, he gives a statement on that. A good teacher is more concerned with delivering content than FaceTime. In other words, your relationship with your class is good, essential, but just because the time is spent with you and um, they find you friendly, trustworthy, does not mean they have been benefiting from uh, spending time with you. So the idea here is uh, it's a balance between uh, giving the truth and then building relationships. So we don't have to choose between them. But our assumption sometimes is if we're cool and hip, that we'll be liked and the relationship will carry the weight. And, and uh, I won't spoil it. You can read uh, the article and um, from uh, Eaton here and it will uh, help you. But uh, uh, I am concerned and I love, I like the way Doug put it here, this uh, article, because he really hits some of the things that are really missing in our evangelical world today. And so it answers partly of why of the millennials, evangelical millennials hurting and so forth is because they've been fed chaff for so long. Yeah. Yeah, I really like the the part of the article where Doug talks about how a good teacher has learned the importance of subtraction and uh, and and, you know, going through your notes. And just because you've studied it doesn't mean it is the best thing to accomplish your goal. Uh, and so, you know, go through your notes that you're going to teach on with a red pen and mark stuff out that is not going to get you to your goal of what you're trying to do. Um, you know, don't go down all these different rabbit trails necessarily. So it's a great article. It, it really, really good. is. Well, on that part about not saying everything just because you've written it down, uh, it, I use the example of uh, editing a you know, film where you have a cutting room floor uh, where you're snipping this out and snipping that out to then piecing it together logically uh, is the there should be a lot of adjectives and things like that on the floor cutting room floor uh, sometimes we misuse uh, words thinking that um, saying more or coming up with uh, you know the word awesome or I was watching a video of the day of a new pastor coming going to his new church but he hasn't arrived there yet with this when this video was done and they were announcing uh, him to introducing him to the congregation and if he used the word passion or passionate once, he used it. I mean, so so, so someone asked me, uh, well, what do you think about him? I said, well, he is passionate. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the only thing I remember because he overwhelmed to the point where it became ad nauseum. So, OK, number um, eight uh, article goes back to CRT again. And this is from the American Institute of Economic Research. Uh, with the title, Why Almost Nobody Knows Anything About Critical Race Theory. So it starts out with the presupposition of knowledge <laughs> or the theme that uh, people really don't understand it. And it starts out, let's um, see, this article by James Hanley. Uh, In recent months, defenders of critical race theory have given two conflicting stories. Some tell us that 
the flap over critical race theory in uh, K through 12 education is a straw man because CRT is just a sophisticated legal theory taught only in law schools and graduate schools. Others say that CRT is the simple factual truth about the history of race and politics in the U.S. And conservative opponents are trying to block teaching that in, that in public schools. These two uh, claims cannot both be true. A complexity of sophisticated ideas taught only in graduate school cannot simultaneously be a simple idea taught in the elementary and high schools. One need not uh, only one need not uh, even critique CRT to agree to this. So why are the defenders contradicting themselves? He says in our research, and I notice that when you have somebody who's going to really oppose it, they study it uh, before they just lay out an idea. So in our research, we should look for an explanation that is both charitable and grounded. How's that? Reasonable, rational. Uh, we're not here to cancel it. We're here just to evaluate whether or not it has veracity. If it has, let it continue being discussed. If it doesn't, you know, dump it. But anyway, by, uh, by charitable, I mean we assume CRT's defenders are not consciously trying to deceive. By grounded, I mean one that easily fits uh, known facts and theories without need for special pleading. Collectively, these two principles are the foundation of Hanlon's razor. There's uh, uh, this razor and uh, there's um, also the razor out of the um, Middle Ages um, that uh, we can check things out, which warns us to never assume malice when ignorance is an adequate explanation. So anyway, the this article is really good as to why we really um, nobody almost no one knows anything about CRT because it's coming at us from two different sides. They're both can't be true because they're so extreme on the opposite ends. And um, and it, so w how are we to really uh, resolve it? So he ends up by saying we don't need to assume anyone is lying or intending to deceive to understand why the political battle over CRT is so um and ver and uh and uh ver not say the word enervating enervating enervatingly stupid. If we were a bit deeper, a look at a biases in human reasoning would provide us with a richer understanding of the cost of sincerely trying to understand CRT and how it is or is not appropriately used at various levels of education. Because frankly, reasoning logically is difficult, therefore costly, and even most scholars do, do it poorly most of the time, and especially when they step even marginally outside of their area of expertise. And we can apply these ideas to costs, benefits, and standard biases in human reasoning to see why most political debates are just as stupid as the debate over critical race theory. So it's, uh, I think it's a very incisive article that challenges, sort of jumps into the larger picture, how we frame an issue, and then how we support it once it's framed. Yeah, I mean, it's good to know that uh, it, it's it's good to read this just to know, uh, you know, a different take on something that a lot of people are talking about. I mean, we just had, uh, what, two two other articles in there dealing with this uh, in the top 10 this week or one yeah. other article. And I know they they're, you know, they're showing up in, mo in the most read almost every week, something about CRT. So. Yeah, there's something about that or or the human sexual drives uh, coming up. You're absolutely right. 
Okay, uh, the number nine is the problem of Christian passivity, and there are a number of parts. This is part one of a number that of this series that uh, Ian uh, Hewitt uh, is uh, has put together. The best way to define what I mean by Christian passivity is uh, through an illustration. Imagine you're sitting, uh, set, you're in a setting in which other Christians are present, and a secular person enters and begins a strenuously denounce to strenuously denounce Christianity. Suppose that, rather than attempting to make any defense of your faith, you allow the person to proceed unopposed, perhaps thinking that simply being polite is the ideal Christian response. If so, you can be sure that the other Christians present will probably think nothing of his reticence, because that's the passivity he's talking about, that we don't know how to put together uh, good ideas. In other words, in the world of Christian apologetics, it's not uncommon to encounter atheists who are both well-read and charitable. My own hostility to Christianity was more typical of the vast majority of anti-Christians. My arguments were unoriginal because I was not at all interested in developing them. Like most secular Westerners, uh, this did not stop me from having a strong opinion, uh, nor from believing that I had discovered that opinion myself. So, in other words, uh, passivity, as he's talking about, is that we really don't know our faith, so we don't say it. And if we do speak up, usually it's going to be from uh, a position of self-defense more than uh, just, again, that rational reason. I don't want to overuse those terms. Uh, presentation, you know, of the faith. So I don't know how you think about that, Mr. Paul. Uh, yeah, you know, I think it's good uh, passivity. When I first read the title, to be honest with you, I was like, okay, this is going to be an article about whether or not to own a gun and protect your family. <laughs> uh, that is not what the article is no. about. It's a, it's about which, which that would be a lot more juicy. Um, I, but this is a, this is about whether to speak up, and uh, I think it makes a great case that you know we do need to speak up, and you know there's a lot of talk about. Uh, you know, winning the culture or leaving the culture alone or how to engage the culture, especially ours that is becoming more and more pagan. And there's good stuff in here about Daniel. There's good stuff in here about what Paul said. And uh, just take a look at it because uh, you won't be disappointed. It's very good. This would be yeah. one, I think, to share with your, um, you know, your small group, something like that. And, and also it would be one of those that if our, the, going back to the article on the evangelical millennials losing their way is they, they basically were hand, uh, you know, spoon fed and never developed a critical spirit. That is a critical of the ability to think critically uh, as opposed to just emotionally. They were fed emotionally and they only responded emotionally and so forth. So they didn't have anything credible to be able to speak back, so they became passive, and now in passivity, they're going through, uh, if the information we've heard is correct, through all this depression, deconversion, and so forth, and that's what happens because the there's no firm foundation. Okay, now we come then to the, and this speaks to this one, the number 10, should elders insist on unanimity? Uh, and uh, I hear this often, as you know, I do quite a bit of, of uh, church uh, consulting, and one of the things that, that I see is there's desire for unanimity. And what I usually my response is that the, we we are to have unity, but not uniformity. 
So we're not um, Stepford people, Christians, you know, where you everybody has to think the same, do the same, operate the same and so forth. And it's uh, but usually the word unity implies if you have a disagreement uh, that you're just you're being uh, disunited and uh, and, uh, you know, you're taking people away. Uh, from it, so he he five reasons not to insist on unanimity. For instance, unanimity isn't the biblical pattern. Uh, refers to uh, you know Second Corinthians two six. The church appears to have exercised church discipline by a majority in the church. Uh, it says in Acts one twenty six, the apostles determined Judas successor by casting lots. Uh, that does this uh, settle the matter? Certainly not. But the it's uh, not necessarily a, a biblical pattern. Unanimity can stifle dissent. So if you say we're going to do everything uh, un- unanimously and one person wants to be a curmudgeon about things and one person really rules the roost. Uh, so majority vote should prevail. Now, hopefully there's going to be sensitivity. There's a difference. Uh, to if something is really uh, tight and hard, then uh, sometimes we need to negotiate, pray more. That's nothing wrong with that. But uh, to expect unanimity for everything is, um, again, that's a utopian uh, vision. Unanimity can discourage trust. Unanimity can slow things down. Unanimity underestimates God's love for his church. Then he goes on to add some other parts uh, to it in terms of more from a uh, positive uh, perspective. So uh, I just commend that this is by Jamie Dunlop. I didn't say the. Well, you know, it, it would it would it strikes me that you know if you're if you're going back and forth on whatever issue it is, and then you you know you have disagreements and you're outvoted, and but you you still have, you know you're going to support uh, you're going to support what the body's doing because you believe in in the church and what do you what does the church believe in? Well, the church agrees on on Jesus Christ. The church agrees on, you know, these sound doctrines. And so I can see how the lack of a unanimous decision could be a good thing. It can be a humbling thing and it can actually make you focus on Christ and why you're really there in the first place and trust him with these decisions and with the people that he has put in place, uh, you know, to serve alongside you and to vote alongside you and to vote differently than you did. And so that's just my, uh, two cents, you know, on the outside looking in. So it is. Well, those are the 10 um, top 10 articles for the Quill Report in weekly review. And we trust that when you get your newsletter that you'll take time to click on through and also just look at the other articles that didn't make in the top 10. I think you'll find them interesting, uh, touching on uh, biblical and theological themes on church, on persons. Uh, some cultural matters, some things in the world, some opinion pieces. So it's we try and keep a wide variety of articles there for uh, the people to for you all to read. So um, appreciate uh, Paul, um, yes sir, being helpful helpful here, and we appreciate you as the audience so listening regularly. And feel free to uh, you know to forward the podcast to uh, friends and and encourage them also to sign up for the. Uh, Quill Report uh, newsletter. Until uh, next time, then, we pray the Lord will bless you.